week. We'll see how many we can do this week. So, As you are turning there, if you do need a Bible, Jerry's in the back and he has some Bibles. He'd love to hand you a Bible if you need one. As we are in the book of Job, you'll find it right before Psalms. And chapter 13 is where we're going to begin tonight. While you're turning there, uh, continue to pray for Operation Christmas Child. Uh, we're in our third day, and uh, Gail um, is, uh, and the rest of the volunteers have been here, and they're going to continue to be here uh, through Monday. So uh, it's not too late to ask uh, to help, and uh, you can talk to Gail. Gail, raise your hand. We, we're good? Okay, we're good. So, all right. We're blessed. Okay, good. So anyway, um, some of you brought your boxes. Put, put it on the table out there, and we'll take care of it tomorrow and then on Sunday as well if you want to bring them. So also parents, the youth, uh, as customarily what they do on Sunday is they're going to help. So they're going to be doing that, and you can pick them up at 4 o'clock. It is from 1 to 5 that the boxes are being delivered, but um, we're going to have the youth here from 1 to 4 o'clock and be sure to pick them up at that time frame so we can kind of get everything closed up by 5 o'clock. So youth coming here, they're announcing that upstairs uh, for the kids. They're going to feed them some pizza, all right, and, uh, and take care of them in that way and be able to help out on Sunday. So look at the hours of collection and um, be sure to get your boxes here, and we'll take care of it and keep praying for the week. Also, on Saturday is Youth Night. The middle and high schoolers will be meeting here from 6 to 8 o'clock on Saturday, this Saturday coming up. And then next Wednesday um, is Thanksgiving Eve, and we're going to have a special Thanksgiving Eve service, and we want to make sure that, um, that if you're able to come, to come. It's a, a blessing. We're going to have a pie social afterwards, so if you want to bring a pie to share with everybody, if you can bring it pre-cut, that helps out. And we're going to have a family service. We're going to try to cram everybody in. I don't know how that's going to work, but we'll do something. And uh, we're going to set up tables in the rooms, and we're just going to have a great time of fellowship, right? It's a neat holiday. One of the things I like about Thanksgiving is it is busy, but it's a different kind of busy than Christmas and um, it's just a neat time to be with family and for us as a church family to be together. So bring a pie if you'd like to to share. Uh, we'll have a short uh, uh, teaching next week, a short service, and then we're going to just have some time of fellowship and uh, just be together. So invite somebody out. We'd love to see uh, you invite somebody and have them join us for Thanksgiving Eve for the Pie Social uh, coming up on Wednesday. Ladies, 55 and over luncheon, December 2nd. Don't forget about that, ladies. And then also there is a ladies' event because I know Christmas gets real busy after Thanksgiving. Uh, ladies, Christmas potluck, December the 6th. Ladies, you don't need to sign up for that, but it's over at Amy Banowitz and her address and uh, the time and everything's in your bulletin, and we'll remind you of that as we get closer to it. All right? Okay, are you there? Father, we do ask that you'd bless this time in the teaching of your word. Again, we thank you for this season of Thanksgiving and Christmas. And what my prayer is, is that um, as we are here and, and as we celebrate uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas and, and the holiday season, that we wouldn't get so busy that we forget really about you and what this season is about, being grateful for your incredible love for us and faithfulness, Lord, for the birth of your son, Jesus. And um, Lord, we can just rejoice in that, and we are going to rejoice in that as, as a church family because Jesus came to save his people from their sins, as uh, the angel would tell Joseph uh, at the time that Mary was with child conceived of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, tonight I pray that you just minister your word to us as we go through these chapters of Job. And you bring comfort to us. And Lord, that you would help us uh, in our times where we go through trials and difficulties and loss. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so what we've seen in Job, of course, Job going through all this loss and difficulty and tragedy. He's lost his children. He, he's lost his income, uh, his, his servants, uh, his wealth, uh, and his health. He got afflicted with boils. And Job finds himself in the ash heap. He's sitting there. He's um, very much in a deep 
grieve uh, and sorrow that he's experiencing. And his three friends come along, and, and we call them friends. I don't know really how uh, good of friends they are, how well they really knew Job, because what we've seen is this conversation between them and Job. And uh, the conversation has been from those three counselors that Job, we're going to see, is going to call them miserable counselors, that they've been accusing Job, saying, Job, you must have sinned, and you need to confess your sin and get right with God, and he'll bless you once again. Well, we saw in chapter 1 that God said concerning Job that he was an upright man. He was blameless. He shunned evil, and he feared God. So we saw this heavenly scene work out to where it was Satan that was saying to God as he was there approaching the throne of God, God said, have you considered my servant Job? And, and Satan said, yes, I've considered him. I've studied him. You've blessed him. You've got a hedge of protection around him. And you remove that and he'll curse you. So God is allowing Satan to, to do these things in the loss that he's gone through. And of course, Job, as he doesn't know what's going on uh, at this point, he's wrestling with a lot of questions. He wrestles with the same questions and the, has expressed the same things that we can express when we go through grief and loss, when God allows things in our lives to where we don't understand why we're going through trials or difficulties or why we experience loss. We do know that we live in a fallen world. We do know that we live in a world there's sin and sickness and disease and sorrow. But why God allows certain things to happen at certain times, we don't have the answer to that. And so we can wrestle with the same kind of things. And that's what we're seeing in this conversation that Job is having with those three individuals. But these three individuals, what they're doing is they're implying that, Job, you've sinned and you're wicked, and because of that, God judged the wicked, and that's why you're experiencing this loss and difficulties. So what you need to do is get right with God. And so they're implying the wrong things to Job, and it is really hurting Job and cutting deep as he hears these from these friends of his that have come to talk with him. And so we saw that, that it is Job that has been answering them, and he answered so far, chapter 11, so far is the, the youngest, the third of the three individuals, uh, friends that have brought counsel to, to Job, and so far is just, he's brutal, he's mean, he's harsh. And so Job has been answering that, and that's what we see here. And then what we're going to see is this second, um, you know, uh, exchange between Job and his three friends that we're going to see when we go into chapter 15, start, starting with Eliphaz. But let's go into chapter 13. Again, Job is expressing his disappointment in his friends and what they have been saying. All three of them have spoke so far. And Job says in chapter 13, verse 1, Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. But you forgers of lies, you are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be silent, and it would be your wisdom. Verse 6, and hear my reasoning, and heed the pleading of my lips. Will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? You, will you show partiality for him? Him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he searches you out? Or can you mock him as one mocks a man? He will surely rebuke you if you secretly show partiality. Will not his excellence make you afraid? And the dread of him fall upon you. Your platitudes are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. So Job, again, expressing his disappointment in his friends. And you can just sense the frustration in his words. He tells them that they're worthless physicians. In other words, I'm hurting. I've been hurt not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually, and you're supposed to be here to help, and you're not doing that. You're like a worthless physician, like when you're sick and you call a doctor and he says, well, take two aspirins and call me in the morning. These guys are even worse than that because they're making the hurt even worse for him, and the pain and the words that they're saying is causing uh, such um, you know, pain to Job in his soul and in his heart. Now, I can't help but think, as he calls them worthless physicians, to think about in Matthew chapter 9. You know how it was Jesus that 
went to the tax table and Levi, come and follow me. And he changed his name to Matthew. And Matthew was one of the disciples. And Matthew, being a Jew and being a tax collector, was hated by the, the, you know, his brethren. He was hated by uh, the Jews because he was seen as a traitor. He was collecting taxes for the king of, of Rome, and we know that um, they usually were dishonest. They were usually wealthy because they would collect more than what the quota was given to them, and anything that they collected above that quota that they were able to keep. So Matthew, he immediately gets up, and I think that Matthew had been watching Jesus there in Capernaum, listening to him, uh, seeing the, the mighty miracles that he had been doing, and Jesus goes to him and says, rise up and, and follow after me, and that's what Matthew did. So he had all his you know, friends over who were tax collectors and sinners to his house, and he is introducing them to his new Lord. He's introducing them to now who he's going to work for, the king of all kings. And as that is going on, the Pharisees come along, and you recall that they began to be disgruntled. They were upset. They said to the disciples, how can your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responded by saying, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners into repentance. And Jesus came for you and for me because we're all sick. That is, we've been sick, stricken with the, the sickness of sin. And Jesus came to make us well. He made us well as he's brought healing to you and to me as, as we come to the cross of Calvary and put our belief in him. And now we have eternal life. But Jesus, he came to rescue you and I. He came to help. And I can't help but think just a short time after that, that Jesus would say on that hillside in Galilee near Capernaum, that he said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Is there a sickness, a sorrow that's in your heart? Go to the great physician who has healed us, brought eternal life to us. We were dead spiritually, Ephesians chapter 2, but God has made us alive through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, through faith in him as we come to him. But the Lord continues to want to minister to us. And as we find ourselves weary and drained and, and tired in life, he says, come to me and you'll find rest for your souls. One of the things that I have found in my life, and I'm sure that you have as well, is that I am so restless if I'm not resting in him. And I know that I need the great physician to continue to bring that healing touch to me when I'm hurting. And Job was looking for that, and he could not find that. So Job doesn't want to hear their deceitful words any longer. You are deceitful defenders of God is what he's saying to them. He wants to hear from God. There are many today who want to bring counseling to others. They, they call it Christian counseling, or I want to counsel others. And listen, the way that you're going to be able to bring comfort to them and to be able to help them, to be a, a great physician of bringing that compassion and healing and, and comfort to people is that you need to give them the truth of God's Word, and you need to touch their hearts. You need to show compassion. You need to really show that you care, and then give them the truth of God's Word. And listen, I, I hear uh, of those who do Christian counseling, but what they're doing is that they're given the world's philosophy. They're given the, the world's psychology. They're given the world's ideas and ways. In Colossians chapter 2, very clearly, Paul says, don't be cheated by that, that which is not of Christ. And what we want to do is we want to give people God's word that will touch people's hearts and we want to tell them about the heart of God, that he loves them and he's with them and he desires to work in their lives. So we're not really helping people if we are not giving them the truth of God's word, if we're not sharing with them the heart of God. So that's what Job really needed, and that's what he's looking for, and that's what he's crying out for. We continue in verse 13 of chapter 13. Hold your peace with me and let me speak, and let 
uh, come on me what may. Why do I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite could not come before him. In verse 17, listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. See now, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Who is he who will contend with me? If now I hold my tongue, I perish. So here we see that Job, he, he declares his faith. And of course, he's up and down emotionally. He's on this roller coaster. But what is amazing is he, he has expressed and he's going to continue to express that God is against me. And, and, you know, why doesn't God care? He feels that way. But then all of a sudden, he'll give this amazing, profound statement of faith. I think this is one of the greatest declarations of faith that we see in Scripture because remember, he's still in the ash heap. He has has lost his kids. He has lost his wealth. He has lost his servants. He is hurting physically. He is hurting emotionally because of the words of these guys accusing him and implying that you are a sinner, Job, and you are against God, and you need to repent from that. And all of a sudden, through all this, this pain that he's expressing and confusion, he says, this great statement of faith in verse 15, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. I want to be more like that, don't you? That when we go through the pain of life, when our heart is really hurting, just as he said in chapter 1, that the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh, blessed be the name of the Lord. And here he says, though the Lord slay me, though I will trust in him. But I want to remind us of something that the Lord was slayed for you and for me. As Jesus went to the cross and through the sufferings. And you see, as we are traveling through John's gospel on Sunday morning, we're going to see now these chapters to where it is Jesus heading to the cross, taking on the cup of suffering and death. And as we look at that, I pray that we would just be more in awe of what Jesus did for us. And why did he do it? Because of his love for us. Just as we saw in chapter 13 last week, that he loved those who were his own and he loved them to the end. And he loves you and that's why he went to the cross. He was slayed. He, he was one that took on uh, the cross so that we might have hope. So if we can trust him with our salvation, know that you can trust him with your life now. And so it's an amazing. In those times where I'm feeling like I'm being slayed, I want to say, I trust you, Lord. I want to grow in my faith. I want to grow in maturity. And I know that God's word declares that he desires to work in our lives to grow us and mature us and for his glory to be revealed through the Lord somehow, some way. Lord, I've got to trust in that. Because your word declares that. I don't understand it right now. I don't see how that's going to happen right now as I'm in the middle of this trial or as I'm grieving right now. But Lord, somehow in eternity's perspective that you're working in me and growing me. And I'm going to trust in that and that you're going to be glorified and that you are working for good for those who love you who are called according to your purposes. So Job is saying that I... Here is he's expressing this, this faith in him, that in the Lord, that I want to take my case directly to God. I want to sh prove my integrity. He's looking for vindication. In verse 16, Job has confidence that God is my salvation, and he's our salvation through Jesus Christ, isn't he? And so he, he continues in verse 20, only two things do not uh, do to me, then I will not hide myself from you. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not the dread of you make me afraid. Then call, and I will answer, or let me speak, then you respond to me. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro? And will you pursue dry stubble? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in stocks and watch closely all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. And man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. So Job expresses that uh, God, you know, why don't you come to me and let's settle this issue. 
But after this, this expression of faith here, his emotions begin to come out again. Lord, withdraw your hand from me. Lord, you know, what have I done? You know, uh, how many are my iniquities, iniquities and sins? Verse 23, why do you hide your face from me? So here he's struggling again as he knows about the, the, the sovereignty of God, the majesty of God we've seen, but he doesn't know about the character of God and the goodness of God. And here he's saying, Lord, why are you striking me? Why are you doing this? He, he believes that God is against him at this point. He's just expressing his hurting heart. One thing that I think about is, is that Jesus would declare in John chapter 10, remember that I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And here is Job is saying, withdraw your hand from me because he believes God is against him. Jesus says that we are in his hands and in the Father's hands and no one will pluck you out. And I am so thankful that I'm in the Lord's hands. We know that Isaiah says we're inscribed on the palm of his hand. And we can just rest that we're in his hands, that he is working in our lives. And Lord, that you are for me, that you're not against me. Because that is your character and that's what your word declares to me. So he continues here in chapter 14. Man who is born a woman is a few days and full of trouble. In verse 2, he comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. Job says that man's life is short, and it is, isn't it? I mean, we can say to somebody that is perhaps very elderly in their 90s or over 100 years old, you've lived a long life, and to us it is long, but life is short in comparison to eternity, isn't it? And that's why James says that our lives are but a vapor. The psalmist writes that our lives are like the flower that fades and the grass that withers away. And it is, however long that we live on this life, it is short in comparison to eternity. And I want to encourage you tonight that as we know that life is short, and it goes by fast, doesn't it? I mean, this whole year has gone by fast, and we're getting ready to close another year and start another year, 2015. I remember when it was 2000, when we changed, you know, into the new millennium. But all of a sudden, you know, uh, as we get older, things go faster, and we realize that life is short, isn't it? But here's the thing. I can't help but think about when Paul was writing to the Corinthian believers in his second letter to them, that he would say to them that our light affliction is but for a moment. In other words, uh, what we're going through in this life right now is but for a moment. And Paul writes, our light affliction. I think light affliction? Paul, you didn't go through light afflictions. I mean, you were beaten. You were thrown in prison. You were scourged. You know, you were robbed. He was, went through all the, he was stoned and left for dead. I mean, Paul went through some really difficult persecution and trials and tribulations for the sake of Christ. And he says, our light affliction is but for a moment and can't be compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. One of the things that will help us in this life and in our journey when we're going through, you know, the hard times and the difficulties, a hard week, a hard month, a hard year, is that, that life is short and that we have eternity that awaits us. And I believe that's why Paul would write in Colossians chapter 3 to keep your eyes on the things above, not on the things of this world. And of course, as we're in this world, we're going to be troubled. We're going to uh, be anxious at times. We, we have fear that grips us. But we are to get our hearts and our minds on the Lord and focus on the Lord and his promises to us and realize that it gets better and life is short and there is waiting for us an eternal weight of glory. I don't know about you, but that helps me. That helps me of knowing that, Lord, that the promise of heaven is for me and I'm going to go to heaven. So whatever it is that I'm going through, I know that you're with me right now. You promise you will never leave me or forsake me. You promise that you'll be with me even to the end, till I take my last breath. Jesus promised, lo, I am with you even to the end. Will you find comfort in that? For that brother and sister or a close relative that is in the Lord, that 
that the Lord was with them to the very end. And the Lord was with them when they took their last breath. And they're with the Lord right now. And the Lord's going to be with you and me because He holds every breath that we take in His hands. And then we're going to be with Him for all eternity, the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. So He's recognizing that life is short, and it is. And, and eternity waits for us. In verse 3, And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, a number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his, his limits so that he cannot pass. Look away from him that he may rest uh, till like a hired man he finishes his day. So Job gives this prayer to God, of, you know, have mercy on me because our days are numbered. Have mercy on, on us, man. Of course, Moses would write in Psalm chapter 90 that God teaches to number our days. And in verse 4, Job feels kind of defeated because, you know, maybe God is demanding something of me that I'm able, unable to do. You ever feel that way? We can put such undue pressure on ourselves. I think that we can be really hard on ourselves. And, and, and maybe God is asking me to do something that I'm not able to do. Now, here's the wonderful truth about God's word is, and the wonderful thing about being a Christian is, when God does ask us to do something, he will enable us to do it, right? See, I can tell you to do something, but I can't give you the strength to do it. The wonderful thing about the Lord is, is that when he gives you a command, he's going to enable you and help you to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes we think, maybe God's going to ask me to do something and has this high expectation that I'm not going to be able to do, and he's going to zap me and get me for that. So Job is expressing that. And, and Job asks something. He, he says, you know, can anybody be you know, clean before God? And, and we know that that God is the one that makes us clean. God is the one that, that cleanses us. Verse 4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. No one can. No one can. But God can, right? And we even talked about this on Sunday in chapter 13, that as Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples and Peter's going, you know, first he refused and then he, and Jesus said, if you don't let me do this, you'll have no part of me. And you got to love Peter's devotion to the Lord. He wanted to have that fellowship with the Lord. Go ahead, wash all of me. And he said, Peter, you are clean. Not all of you are clean. He's talking about Judas, the betrayer, but you're clean. You just need to have your feet washed. But we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. As John later on at the end of his life, when he's writing those uh, epistles to the church, that he writes in 1 John that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God, he's the one that makes us clean. And as we journey through this life, that as we just continue to have devotion to the Lord and as we just give our hearts to him, and we do, we struggle in the flesh. You know, we're not perfect. We, we, we fail at times. He continues to be faithful as we just go to him to forgive us and confess that sin but also there is a cleansing that we talked about that takes place on Sunday as we take in the word of God being cleansed by the word of God it's the work of the Lord the work of the Holy Spirit with the work of the word of God in our lives as he makes us clean forgiving and and washed clean and sins uh, are washed away and we become as white as snow so I love that verse in Isaiah that says that as he says, come and reason with God. Uh, though our sins be like scarlet, uh, he will make them as white as snow. Amen. So here we know that Job, he's saying, who can be clean? Well, uh, no one can except through the work of, of Jesus on the cross and coming to faith in him. But let's continue on in verse 7. For there is hope for a tree if it is cut down and uh, it will sprout again and that its tender roots will not cease. Though it's 
roots may grow old in the earth and its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? As water disappears from the sea and as a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. So if man dies, shall he live again? You know, that's the big question that man asks. At least man should ask that question. Sometimes we don't like to talk about that. But we know that every single one of us, that our lives are going to come to an end. Unless we're raptured, which I pray happens. But, it, you know, if the Lord tarries, eventually our bodies are going to wear out. And everyone's going to move on into eternity, aren't they? For you and I that are in Christ Jesus and our faith and trust in Him, we're going to move on in eternal life that's been granted to us, that is heaven, being with Jesus. And Jesus also talked about eternal death. But eternal death is simply separation from God, that there are the unbelievers that will be cast into the lake of fire, into hell, and it's for all eternity. There's some teachings from some popular speakers that, that are saying today that hell is not for eternity, that it, there really isn't a hell, some of them are saying. But Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. And he said it's for eternity, and he said it's real. So we know that there's that separation from God. Hell is real for those who have rejected the gospel message in Jesus Christ in their hearts. So here, here he is, he's asking, you know, if man dies, shall he live again? And you and I, we know the truth of what God's word declares to you and to me. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. That he's the resurrection and the life. And Job is thinking that if I keep uh, you know, on this side of eternity, that, that if, as long as I'm here, there is no hope. It's hopeless and God has forsaken me. He's saying this from intense grief and pain again. And of course, that familiar scripture that I've quoted, and you know a lot of you do, Jeremiah 29, 11. As the Lord says, I know my thoughts towards you. They're thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. He is our future. He is our hope. He is the only hope that there is. Always remember that. He is our hope. So Job, in verse 15, as, as we read here, you, you shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the, the work of your, your um, uh, hands. And, and so Job wanted restoration with God, but he thinks it really is impossible in this life. And it is for you and for me as we come to Christ and trust in him. In verse 18, but as a mountain falls and crumbles away and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones and as torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him and he passes on. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor and, and he does not know it. They are brought low, and he does not perceive it. But his flesh will be in pain over it, and his soul will mourn over it. So Job has this wrong concept of God again. He sees God as one who gives no hope, destroys hope. God sets himself against man, verse 18, as we read here. Unfortunately, people, they feel that way, don't they? And perhaps you talk to somebody, and one of the things about the holidays is, is that oftentimes as you talk to family members or co-workers or, or neighbors, uh, you may have an opportunity to be able to share about the things of the Lord because we're around a lot of people. And sometimes people express, and they have to me, because I talk to a lot of people, that somehow that, uh, you know, there is no hope and God is kind of against me and you know, why does these things happen? And God doesn't care. And we are able to share the heart of God and the truth of God with them, that God does care. And he didn't leave us without any hope, right? Amen? You know, when Paul was writing to the church at Thessalonica, that he says to them, as he says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. And he's going to talk to them about the resurrection and the rapture of the church. But he says that for those who have fallen asleep, we don't grieve as though we have no hope. We do grieve. Obviously, we do. God made us to grieve. Of course we grieve. 
when we have somebody that we love that passes on, but we don't grieve as though we have no hope. We have hope, don't we? And sometimes that hope is the only thing that makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense. That's what I've just kind of expressed to a couple kids that last week that their friend was killed, shot. An event that took place in our community. And a murder-suicide, a 17-year-old girl, life, one night, their friend gone. Makes absolutely no sense. And the only sense that they have that makes is there is hope that she's with Jesus. There is hope. They grieve, they cry, they're going to cry and grieve. And we grieve and cry, but we have hope. Jesus did not leave us without any hope. And that's what we can tuck into our hearts. So here, as he's expressing this, he's, he's done with this answering his critics. And now this second round of, of counsel is going to come to Job. And, and what we're going to see is these guys are really going to dig in their heels and pretty much be saying the same thing, but with harsher words, with, with, with a harsher tone. Eliphaz, Eliphaz, the first one to speak before, he's probably the oldest. And we see that he speaks now uh, as he speaks to Job. Eliphaz would answer him, verse 2, should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should the, he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches with which he can do no good? Yes, you cast off fear and re, re, um, restrain prayer before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. Really nice guy, isn't he? Here he is coming against Job's words, saying that your words are empty, Job. You're nothing more than hot air. And he's saying this because remember that Eliphaz has accused Job of sinning. That's why you're here in the ash heap, Job, because of your sin, because of your wickedness, and now you're trying to justify your sin. And as I mentioned, he is digging in his heels, and we're going to see this with Bildad and so far as well. They're just digging in their heels and standing firm in their position that, Job, you've sinned, and that's why you're suffering. And as we continue here in verse 7, and you, uh, are you the first man who was born? Or were you made before the hills? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not in us? Verse 10, both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, much older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you? Uh, and the word spoken gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And what do your eyes wink at? In verse 13, that you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth. This guy is just blasting away with both barrels, isn't he? Showing no mercy at all. You don't have understanding, Job. Now, at first, when we saw first Eliphaz, you know, address Job, he had a little bit of, of softness, even though he was implying, Job, that you've sinned, there was a little bit of kindness, but not here. Hey, what do you know, Job? Were you the first man born? Are you older than the hills? And so here he's saying there's the gray hair. And again, that he's looking back probably, this is 250 years, maybe 300 years after the flood, the worldwide flood. We know, as we've just come out of that flood a few hundred years ago, that the wicked man on the earth, as violence covered the earth and the wickedness of man, that God punished man. And so that's what perhaps is driving this, this, you know, uh, this you know, response of these guys to Job. And so here, his words are not comforting. His words are not true. He's saying... Why don't you listen, Job, to, to God's counsel? But the problem was they were not speaking for God. We want to make sure that when we're giving counsel to people, that we're giving God's word in God's heart. They go together. 
you can give God's word and be very, very harsh and put it in a way to where it's not the heart of God or misimply it or apply it in a wrong way. And that's what these guys are doing. Not everything that they're saying is wrong, but they're mis, you know, applying it to Job's situation. And we need to have wisdom. That's why I don't think these guys really knew Job all that well. Because Job was blameless. He was upright. He shunned evil. He feared the Lord. And yet these guys are accusing him of, of, of great wickedness. And that's why this has happened in your children as well. So we want to make sure that we take the Word of God and we apply it in the right way to whoever it is that we're bringing counsel to. It's so very important. In verse 14, as we continue, what is man that he could be pure and he who is born of woman that he could be righteous? If God puts no trust in his saints and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is abominable and filthy uh, who drinks iniquity like water. So, yeah, Job, we're all sinners, he's saying. It's true that man cannot be righteous before a holy God on his own merit. We know that. There are those who try to, to be righteous before God on their own merit. We cannot be righteous before God in our own righteousness, in our own merits, in our own works. Because Isaiah declares that all of our righteousness are filthy rags before the Lord. That we need to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That as we come and we recognize that we are a sinner and we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we're cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then positionally that we have that righteous standing before God. So here we see that he's recognizing that, yeah, we're all sinners, but kind of like, but Job, you must have really sinned for this to happen. Verse 15 here, it's interesting that that uh, word is um, used in verse 15, if God puts no trust in his saints. Now we know what the New Testament uh, meaning of saint is, definition of saint is, those who are believers. There are many people that think that a saint is somebody as, um, you know, that was canonized after, you know, the Catholic Church went through this long process of canonizing them, and that's a saint. Well, we know the biblical definition of a saint, isn't it, is one who's a believer. And Paul, writing to the believers in his epistles, oftentimes would begin by saying to the saints at the church of Philippi, the saints at the church of Colossae. So if you're a believer, you're a saint. But here it's not used in that way. Here a saint, many believe is a reference to angels. Many scholars believe it's probably a reference to fallen angels. But let's continue on. Verse 17, I will tell you, hear me, what I have seen I will declare, what wise men have told, not hiding anything received from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no alien passed among them. The wicked man rice with his pain all his days, and the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. Verse 21, dreadful sounds are his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer comes upon him. He does not believe that he will return from darkness, for a sword is waiting for him. He wanders about for bread, saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him like a king ready for battle. For he stretches out his hand against God and acts defiantly against the Almighty, running stubbornly against him and with his strong embossed shield. And so we see here that, again, he's relying on experience. In verse 17, we see that, I will tell you, hear me. What I have seen, I will declare. Listen, never put experience over the Word of God. I've run into this a whole lot of times where people will try to put their experience over the Word of God. The Word of God is our final authority. I don't care what experience you had. The Word of God is our final authority. And don't put your experience over the Word of God. So he's doing that. And he is saying that all wise people know that uh, what I have been declaring is true. So don't turn your back on this wisdom. You know, there are those who try to put experience over the Word of God and they'll say, what I'm saying is true. Don't, you know, don't, 
you know, turn away from that, believe what I'm saying, and people are going, ooh, and ah. I've heard all kinds of crazy things of somebody, you know, that's had certain things that they've said, experiences, and it doesn't line up with the Word of God. So don't just automatically take it, you know, when somebody says, here's my experience, and you got to believe it, you got to check it out with the Word of God. Amen? Test the spirits to see if they are of God, that John says in his epistles, to see if they are of God. So we've got to be testing things through the Word of God. So here is Eliphaz saying, you know what, just here's my experience. What I'm declaring is true. Don't turn your back on this wisdom. The wicked man writes uh, in pain all day, and then he goes on and describes the suffering of the wicked that we read. And clearly the implication is that you are in pain, Joe, because you are wicked. And as we have discussed oftentimes, as we've already gone through this and we will continue to touch on it, that as we live godly in Christ Jesus, it does not mean that we are exempt from suffering or difficulties or trials. Jesus said you will have tribulation. He didn't say you might. He said well, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. And we know that it rains on the just and the unjust. And those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So the godly, yes, they will suffer. And we see that oftentimes it seems like the wicked prosper in this life. And we talked about that last week as we read from Asaph in Psalm 73 as he was made to stumble because it seems like the wicked prosper. But then he went into the sanctuary and he saw the end of their ways. He understood that they're not getting away with it. Unless those who have rebelled against God and seem like they're prospering in this world and taking advantage of people and cheating people and, and you look at it and you think, how can they get away with it? They're not getting away with it. And unless they repent and turn to Jesus Christ and give their lives to Him, the end of their way is destruction. So here is Eliphaz saying, this is just the way it is. You've got to believe my experience. But in verse 27, though he has covered his face with his fatness and made his waist heavy with fat, he dwells in desolate cities and houses which no one inhabits, which are destined to become ruins. He will not be rich, nor will his wealth continue, nor his possessions uh, overspread the earth. Verse 30, he will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry out his branches, and by the breath of his mouth he will go away. Let him not trust in futile things, deceiving himself, for futility will be his reward. It will be accomplished before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like a vine and cast off his blossom like an olive tree. For the company of hypocrites will be barren, and fire will consume the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and bring forth futility. Their womb prepares deceit. So in these final words of this chapter to Eliphaz address, he gives Job the hardest, I think most painful words saying that, Job, you're a hypocrite. And how that must have been just a, such a painful blow to Job to hear that. You're a godless man, Job. And you're to blame for your sufferings. The sin you conceived has been born, as he finishes the chapter in saying that. You know, for you and for me, as we go through this life and we go through difficulties and we go through storms in life, there are different reasons why we go through storms. And we see that in the scriptures. But know this, that the Lord desires for us to draw close to him. He desires to work in our lives. He desires for us to grow in faith and for him to be glorified through those things. So if you're here tonight and whatever difficulty you might be going through or pain or sorrow, know that the Lord is near, that the Lord wants to work for your good, that he desires to, to just grow you in faith and for him to be glorified through whatever it is that's going on in your life and that you can trust in him and you can rest in him in his love because Jesus Christ proved his love by going to the cross for you. Amen? Amen. Next time, two weeks from now, we see that Job is going to answer his friends and uh, give a prayer. We'll pick it up at chapter 16. I was hoping to get through chapter 17. 
We'll have to do that next time in two weeks, all right? So, Father, we thank you for this time as we've gone through these three chapters. Um, Lord, we just pray that uh, you would, uh, Lord, just as we close tonight, just remind us of your character and your goodness and your provision for us. And, Lord, yes, we can and will hurt in life and we grieve and we can struggle. But Lord, also we can stand on your promises and your word given to us. So Lord, help us to do that. And Lord, to find strength in you when we're weak. To find comfort when we mourn. To find direction when we're confused. Lord, to have a peace that passes understanding when we don't understand. And to have a rest when we're restless. We know that it only comes from you, Lord. And my prayer, Lord, is that you would, Lord, touch our hearts because you are the wonderful counselor and you're our hope and you don't leave us without any hope. Father, I thank you for us being here tonight. And I do pray that, Lord, that everyone here is in Christ Jesus because life is short and we move on into eternity. But I want to pray if there's anyone that's listening on live stream right now, or perhaps somebody that is here or maybe somewhere in the building listening to this message, whether here at a coffee shop, if you've never really committed your life to Jesus Christ, He loves you. And you can trust him with your salvation because Jesus is your only salvation. You cannot become righteous on your own. The question was asked, can a man be clean? Can a man be righteous before God? No, not in your own works or merits. It's only in faith in Jesus Christ. The one who is the son of God, who lived a perfect life, who lived a righteous life, sinless, went to the cross and died for you. And the Bible says that as you come in faith, believing and trusting in who he is, the Son of God, and what he did for you, and dying on Calvary's cross, and he made atonement for your sins. He took all of your sins upon himself as he hung on that cross. And he died in place of you and for you because he loves you. And he proved what he did on the cross by rising from the grave. The tomb is empty. And now as you believe in him, that the Bible says you will be saved and today is the day of salvation. So if that means anything to anyone here tonight, will you pray this prayer? That Jesus, I am a sinner, I confess it. And I believe you died on Calvary's cross for my sins. Forgive me of my sins. And I believe you rose again. And I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. And I open my heart to you right now for you to sit upon the throne of my heart. I surrender my life to you. And Lord, help me to live for you all the days of my life. And if by chance anybody did pray that prayer tonight, I want you to come and pray with me and tell me the decision that you made after the service. But tonight, Lord, I just pray that tonight that we would just, as we go home and as we have our day tomorrow, that whatever is before us, that we know that you're with us. You're not against us. You're with us. And you promise you'll never leave us or forsake us. And lo, you're with us always, even to the end. So Lord, may we be comforted as we leave this place and blessed. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you please stand?